0: Well, if you have been around here for long, as we've been going through Luke's gospel, we have seen many times how Luke loves to bookend things, Uh, whether it's one paragraph maybe, or kind of one section. He likes to start with an idea or a theme and then wrap that section up with an idea or a theme. And our passage for this morning is famously called the triumphal entry. Uh, and this event here happens just five days before Jesus would be crucified as a criminal, which we're going to take a deeper dive into here in a moment. But this bookend, uh, we're going to see in a, in a little bit here, uh, how what we're looking at today is, is actually tied to something that we saw earlier in Luke. So let's go back to Jesus' first entry into the world, which I would argue was also triumphal entry, though not quite in the same way. And I think the triumphalness of both of these entries is seen with an amazingly similar song of praise. So we just read this here in Luke chapter 19, where uh, the the multitude of his disciples in verse 38 are begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now in Luke chapter 2, when an angel appeared to a group of shepherds and announced the birth of a savior who is Christ the Lord, we read that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you notice some of the similar themes there? They're praising God. The crowds are praising God. The angels are praising God. Glory to God in the highest is, is this refrain. The angels say on earth peace. The crowds say in heaven, peace. In the early part, in Luke two, Luke 2, when Jesus' birth was announced, it was peace on earth that was announced. And we might ask, what does peace on earth look like? Some of us in this room are probably old enough to remember the days when a bunch of young people in the 60s and 70s thought that they had it figured out. Just consider the first half of John Lennon's 1971 song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace, you. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. And that sounds really good. Until you wake up and see the headlines of another mass shooting, first in Atlanta, and then in Boulder, and you read these comments from the governor of Colorado. This is just where everybody goes to pick up groceries. Never ever does it cross your mind that that trip to the grocery store could be your last moments on earth. In a world that is dominated by peace, the thought of your trip to the grocery store being your last moments on earth would, of course, never cross your mind. But that is clearly not the world that we are living in. And no pie-in-the-sky hippie escapist mentality is going to change the reality that we live in a broken and fallen world. And we see the brokenness of the world in Jesus' Palm Sunday ride into Jerusalem and in his Monday cleansing of the temple. I think his entry into Jerusalem is really as tragic as it is triumphal, at least from a human perspective. If we've learned anything from this long journey through Luke's gospel, not only does the peace that Jesus came to bring look a whole lot different from the world's definition of peace, but his approach and his message were fiercely opposed. Which is evidence in our passage here. We're going to see that the absence of peace will inevitably result in the sorry. The absence of praise will inevitably result in the absence of peace. You're taking notes and you want kind of a main idea. The absence of praise will inevitably result in the absence of peace. We're going to be looking at this in the three sections, kind of according to the ESV headings there. The first we're going to see peace seen and heard. Then we're going to see peace not known. And we're going to see peace obstructed. Peace seen and heard. Peace not known. And peace obstructed first let's look at peace seen and heard in verses 28 through 40 now remember the context of of where we're at here we just saw last week the parable of the minas earlier in chapter 19 uh, where this group of people they did not want to submit to their king they did not want him to reign over them and it ends in verse 27 with this picture of the king saying to bring the enemies who did not want me to reign over them and he will slaughter them so that the teaching here is that judgment is coming for those who don't submit to the king's reign. That's what's going on here in verse 28 when, it, when we kick off this section where it says, and when he had said these things, that's the these things, he had just told that parable of the minas. Now this triumphal entry here, you're probably familiar with this account if you've been in church, if you've read the gospels, all four gospels contain uh, this account. This is one of the few things that is in all four Gospels. Once we get to Palm Sunday, there's a lot of things that are in all four Gospels, but up until this point, there's not many things that all four Gospel writers record, especially because John doesn't have some of the things that the other writers have, but all four accounts have the triumphal entry. So Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to secure his transportation into the city. Then he rides along as cloaks are and palm branches. The other accounts talk about palm branches being laid down. Uh, as they're, they're laid down on the road and Jesus rides into Jerusalem. So I said here that we both see and hear peace in this account. So there is both a, a visual uh, and a verbal. So how do we first see peace in this account? Well, We read in our Old Testament reading from Zechariah 9, And in Zechariah 9, there is a promise of judgment upon Israel's enemies in the first part of the chapter. And then he talks about future salvation for God's people. And in the middle of that, in the middle of this picture of judgment upon the enemies and salvation for God's people, is this great picture of what the coming king will look like. Again, remember that Jesus' parable last week was told because the Jewish people, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately and they thought it would be this grand display of power and of victory over their enemies. And Jesus is confronting that idea and he's pushing back against that here. The verses that we saw in Zechariah 9, I think are actually much closer to the picture that we get here of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this colt. Again, Zechariah 9, starting in verse 9, he says, rejoice greatly. Some of the things we see here is righteousness and humility, speaking peace to the nations, and actually him ruling over all the nations. And we're going to see this concern for the nations later on in this passage, so keep that in mind. So that's what we see, okay? That's the, that's the visual. Next, let's look at the verbal expression of peace that we see here, where peace is actually heard. So this whole multitude of disciples rejoices and they praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen Jesus do. And again, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's this loud and exuberant recognition that the king has arrived. He is here. And notice again, the cry of peace, peace in heaven. I think it's interesting that the angels in Luke chapter 2, these heavenly dwellers, they say, peace on earth. And here we have these earthly dwellers saying, peace in heaven. I don't want to over-speculate too much here, but perhaps these earthly, earthly dwellers, they actually have their sights more fixed heavenward than earthward. They realize that peace on earth is something that is not attainable, so they say, peace in heaven. But then notice who's waiting in the background to pounce. As usual, those whose sights always seem to be fixed earthward and not heavenward. Those who have been constantly hounding Jesus and those who would not give their allegiance to him as their rightful king. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus, how dare you let them go on like this? What is this nonsense? What are they saying? And you have to love Jesus' response in verse 40. Not just because he rebukes the Pharisees, but because it cuts at the very heart of this whole issue of peace and it confronts us in our sin and our brokenness as well. I tell you, Jesus said, if these were silent The very stones would cry out. No praise, no peace. The Pharisees refused to join in and to give the king the praise and the glory that he is rightfully due. And Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue. He will get praise as the rightful king, no matter where it comes from, even if it's from these inanimate objects. He will get the praise that he is due. So I want us to ask ourselves a couple questions based on what we've just seen and heard here. Have we seen and heard the peace of God? Have we seen and heard the peace of God? The way we answer that question is by answering the question, have we seen and heard Jesus Jesus said to Philip in John chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Remember, Philip said, show us the Father, and that is enough for for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, obviously, we don't see Jesus with our physical eyes the way that the disciples did. But remember what Jesus said to Thomas in John chapter 20 after Thomas, Saw the resurrected Jesus and finally believed in him? He said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's us, folks. We see him with the eyes of faith. We don't actually see Jesus physically here on earth, but we see Christ in his word when it is read and when it is preached and when the sacraments are observed. We saw it earlier in Michael's baptism, that picture of God's grace and forgiveness that washes away our sins, that seals ourselves to Christ, that reminds us of the fact that we belong to him. We see Christ in that baptism. And then we hear his voice in those same ways as well. We see him and we hear him. We're reminded of his truth. We're reminded of what he calls us to do in response to what we have heard. So what are we going to do in response to what we have seen and heard? Are we, church, are we demonstrating and displaying the peace of God so that others around us who don't know him might see and hear it? Are we praising him for the peace that we have with him? When the world around us feels like all chaos all the time, are we calm and at peace because our security is in Christ? As the world around us continues to rage out of control, the church of Jesus Christ must stand firm upon the peace that our King alone can provide. Amen? So we've looked at peace seen and heard. Now let's look at peace not known. Peace not known, verses 41 to 44. We see the compassion of our Savior here as he weeps over Jerusalem because her inhabitants do not know what makes for peace, Jesus says in verse 42. Now, Luke is the only gospel writer who records this account of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And these are real tears of sorrow. This is showing us the the genuine humanity of our Savior. But what does Jesus mean here when he says... What does he mean when he says that they don't know the things that make for peace? I think we actually saw this a little bit earlier in chapter 13. In chapter 13, Jesus had told the Pharisees that he must finish his work and he must go to Jerusalem because he says it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus had already predicted his death several times before this, but he kind of ups the ante again and he says that, he is going to Jerusalem to die. He's telling this to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And then listen to what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so that back in chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the triumphal entry here. He's predicting that he's going to ride into Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, in chapter 13, he wasn't even in Jerusalem, right? He's lamenting. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, because he knows what's coming. He's headed to Jerusalem, even though he's not even there yet. And again, he's predicting what is about to take place. So he's warning them ahead of time. Now, here he is approaching the city, and he's lamenting the truth of that the truth of who he is is hidden from from their eyes, and that they are going to kill him like they have killed the prophets before him. And he is lamenting this fact. Then he describes in Grave detail here in verses 43 and 44. He describes what will happen to Jerusalem. And this is not a pretty picture. In a little under 40 years, in AD 70, Jerusalem would undergo a siege for five months by the Roman army. Jerusalem would be leveled to the ground. The temple would be destroyed and burned. There are some estimates, maybe a little bit exaggerated, but one estimate is that a million people were killed. This Again, this would have been um, a time when people were, were coming to Jerusalem. It was during the time of the Passover, so there were definitely several hundred thousand people there, uh, and it's also estimated that 97,000 people were enslaved, and many of those people were uh, made to be gladiators and, and were just pretty much put to their immediate death. So this here is a picture of utter devastation and ruin. But it's not random. It was both predicted by Jesus and it was warranted by Jerusalem's rejection of him as their true messianic king. If you go back to verse 27, what the king says, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That happens in 70 A.D. And it is a truly sad reality that Jesus actually intensifies in this next scene, in this incredibly symbolic act in the temple here. Finally, we see peace obstructed, peace obstructed in verses 45 to 48. We know from Mark's gospel account that on Palm Sunday, Jesus actually entered into the temple and he looked around And then he left and he came back on Monday and that's when he cleansed the temple. So this is actually happening on Monday, these events here. And on a surface level reading of this, even if you're familiar with this account or if you're familiar with the significance of these things, the obstructions of peace here are pretty easy to see. First, there are people selling goods in the temple when it should have been a house of prayer. That's the first obstruction. The second is that, As Jesus is teaching daily, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, these are the big dogs in Jerusalem, they are seeking to destroy him. They want him out of the way. They want him dead. So those are the two obstructions. It's the obstructions to the temple worship and the obstructions to Jesus' teaching. So I said that what Jesus does here is incredibly symbolic. Well, how so? this scene in the temple points to two very fundamental aspects of God's redemptive purposes. The first one is the end of the sacrificial system in the temple, and the second is the inclusion of the Gentiles, and these things go hand in hand. Jesus begins here by quoting from Isaiah 56 about God's house being a house of prayer, and then from Jeremiah chapter 7 about about Jerusalem being a den of robbers. And this is actually, you can go read Jeremiah 7 later. Uh, It's an intense word of judgment against the people of Israel for their idolatry and for their disobedience to the Lord. But in Isaiah chapter 56, concerning the house of prayer, listen to what the Lord says to his people in Isaiah 56. The heading of this section in the ESV is salvation for foreigners. He says, He says, The foreigners that are talked about here are Gentiles. It's those from other nations who the Lord will make joyful in his house of prayer and whose sacrifices he will accept. Well, why is this significant? It's because of what is going on in the temple here. This activity that Jesus comes in and busts up, this selling of animals for sacrifices here, what was happening is, people would travel very long distances to come to Jerusalem. And if you were going to like sacrifice an ox, you're not going to drag an ox with you for a hundred miles to bring it to sacrifice. And also there were, there was the possibility that your animal that you brought to, sac- to sacrifice might not be accepted by the priests if there were some blemishes in it. So people went to Jerusalem and they bought animals outside of the temple to, to sacrifice. Well, here are these people in the temple with these exorbitant prices. They're, they're, got exchange rate things going on they're cheating people this is this whole thing is a money making machine and you know where it's happening it's not happening actually inside the temple it's happening in the court of the gentiles which is this massive area many many football fields wide in the court of the gentiles this outer court and that was the only place that the gentiles were allowed to go to worship and to sacrifice they were not allowed to go in the temple with the Jewish people. So here they are in the only place they can go, the only place they can worship God. And these Jewish leaders, these these booths, these sellers are disrupting their very opportunity to come and worship God. So Jesus goes after them. They are having their peace with God obstructed by what is going on. They are literally being robbed of their opportunity to worship God. This den of robbers, these people are being robbed of their opportunity to worship God. So this inclusion of the Gentiles here that Jesus is getting at is one of the fundamental aspects of God's redemptive purposes. And then the other one I said is the end of the sacrificial system in the temple. Now I'm indebted to Sinclair Ferguson here for his insights on this point. Remember how Luke loves to bookend things. Well, if you remember way back, uh, Luke chapter two, this is not the first time that Jesus has been in the temple. Luke is the only gospel writer who records the two temple scenes from Jesus' childhood. The first one you'll remember that we looked at many, many months ago is when Simeon is holding baby Jesus and he cries out, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Keep that in mind. The Messiah's birth means salvation for Jews and Gentiles. Again, back to Isaiah 56, back to the other promises of God bringing people in from many nations and then Jesus has a 12-year-old boy sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers, asking them questions. You remember the whole crew had already left and they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. So they go back and Mary and Joseph come and they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house and now here he is about 20 years later in his father's house, defending it from those who would make a mockery of the peace that Jesus came to bring to those from all nations. And there's one more. And again, this was something that Sinclair Ferguson pointed out that, I, that was fascinating that I didn't read in any of the commentaries I read. So I was, I was really thankful uh, to hear this when I listened to his message. There's one more really significant thing going on here. Jesus has just predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. And here he is with the first of two acts that will foreshadow the end of the temple. So this driving out here of those making the temple a den of robbers, this is a sign of judgment from Jesus. This is a sign that these things are coming to an end. But the real nail in the coffin of the temple comes when jesus dies on the cross and the curtain in the temple rips in two from top to bottom something that was impossible to be done by the hands of people symbolizing that there is now direct access to god through jesus christ our only mediator and that the sacrificial system is rendered obsolete this is good news for all of humanity we now have direct access to god through jesus christ We don't need to travel to Jerusalem during the Passover in order to slaughter animals in hopes that God might pass over our sins if our sacrifice is acceptable. We can approach him now, here and now, without obstructions and be at peace with him as we worship him. So I want us to consider a few questions as we think about our worship of God here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in 2021. First, What does our worship in God's house communicate about our reverence to God and our welcoming of outsiders? What does our worship in God's house communicate about our reverence for God and our welcoming of outsiders? In other words, are we more like a house of prayer for all nations, or are we more like a den of robbers? Next do we seek to further Christ's teaching and not hinder it like those religious leaders in the temple? And are we, like the people in the temple that day, hanging on Jesus' words? Not just the red letters, right? Not just the things that he spoke as God in the flesh, but all of scripture. Are we hanging on it? Are we seeking to learn from it? Are we seeking deeper communion with the Lord as we study it and as we meditate on it? This is a great question for us as we seek to particularize, as we seek to be firmly established here in the community. Will we be known for these things? Will Living Stone Church be known for these things? That we fear God and that we reverence him in our worship, that we welcome outsiders, And that his word is so precious to us that we hang on every single word. Will we be known for those things? Well, I wanna close by turning to one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. Ephesians chapter two. I invite you to turn there. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 976. I wanna encourage you to go home uh, later today and to hang on these words. This whole chapter is amazing. Uh, It's probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. Many of us are very familiar with verses one through 10. Uh, It's an amazing declaration of what God has done for us by his grace and mercy when we were dead in our sins, that he saved us by grace through faith, not of our nothing that we have done, nothing that we can boast in, but I think we're probably not as familiar or as appreciative of the second half of this chapter, which I think is equally amazing. And it actually has a pretty direct parallel in many ways with the passage that we have just been considering this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'm going to read this and, and kind of make some comments as I go. It's Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Again, here's this picture of of Gentiles, right? They were able to come into that court of the Gentiles. They could only come so far, but really at the end of the day, they were still kind of stiff-armed, right? By the Jews. They weren't weren't yet fully included in the people of God. And notice what Paul says next in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This is a miracle, folks. And whenever we talk in our nation about racial strife and bringing people together, Those are good conversations to have, but that can never, that type of friction, that type of divide can never be healed just by human terms. And if we want to look at history and we want to look at some of the most hated groups of people, this Jew and Gentile hatred that they had for for one another is almost unparalleled in human history. For Paul to be writing to a church of Jews and Gentiles, Jew ethnically Jewish people who are Christians, right? And Gentiles who are one in Christ is a miracle. It's a total miracle. It's something that only God have do- God could have done. And how did he do it? Through the cross of Christ. Christ is our peace. And he has broken down that dividing wall of hostility. Now, I don't know if that's directly a reference to the curtain being torn in the temple, but if that curtain is a picture of that dividing wall, Christ tore it down, Right? In his death, he tore down everything that could not that kept us from from coming to God and from being reconciled to one another, which he talks about in verse 16, that Christ might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And what did he do? He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Again, the Gentiles were far off, the Jews were near. Jesus came and preached peace to both of them. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God no longer needs to dwell in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain in the temple that only the Jews could get to. He dwells in us as his people, the church. And it's not this place that all these people come from all around the world to come and see, right? He gathers us and he sends us out to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to proclaim this type of reconciliation that is only possible through Christ, that is only possible through the gospel. This is amazing. I mean, if this doesn't blow your mind, like I don't know what will. Like if you don't get excited about this, you need to check your pulse, okay? This doesn't have to be your favorite chapter in the Bible, I don't care, but you have to get excited about this, okay? If you're a Christian, you have to be excited about this. This is incredible. So again, go home and read it. Read the whole chapter. Meditate on what God has done for you personally in verses one through 10 to bring you to Himself and what He has done corporately to bring us together as His people. Again, as we move on, as we become particularized, as we seek to, to trust God, as we seek to be faithful. For as long as as Livingstone Church exists, may this be the cry of our hearts that we might be built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit, by his grace. Let us pray. Father, you are so good to us and we know that we do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. We do not deserve what Christ did for us on the cross by shedding his blood, by reconciling us to you, by reconciling us to one another. God, may your church be a picture of peace to a world that desperately needs peace to a world that is without hope to a world that needs the truth of the gospel, needs the light of Christ to shine into it. God, would you be pleased to use Livingstone Church, to use each and every one of us to be that light, to be that city on a hill. God, thank you for what you have done for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.